Hello. Good. Since you have already started eating, it's good afternoon for you. Is it still good morning for me? Um, welcome to to our series on Latin America. I'm very happy and proud today to introduce uh, Professor Fernando Gamarra. He's originally from Bolivia, and uh, so we have a kind of large Bolivian turnout today. Um, and he's a professor at the uh, Florida International University in Political Sciences. He's a specialist in Latin American politics, particularly, very particularly, on Bolivia. Um, we, you all know, and probably that's one of the reasons why you are here. Is Bolivia is a hot spot today in Latin America uh, because of uh, the uh, recent, I mean, the, the last events, uh, developments, you know, with the Evo Morales coming to power and the, uh, the indigenous movements uh, um, struggling to for power and all the instability that has, that, that has produced uh, in the country and even repercussions in the region. Uh, so that's why um, we decided that we needed to have somebody, an specialist, to talk about Bolivia in this series. So here we are. Thank you for coming. Uh, Fernando Gamarra has published uh, extensively on Latin American politics and Bolivia in particular, several books and multiple articles, and he has been, uh, he's a friend of us, he has been here before, and probably he will be, surely he will be here in the future. So uh, join me to welcome Fernando Gamar. Thank you very much. Uh, just only one very brief correction. Um, and this happens all the time, by the way. Um, I'm Eduardo, not Fernando. But, <laughs> but that, that's fine, because growing up, my, my, uh, my first cousin was Fernando. And uh, I was always getting in trouble. Uh, but Fernando was always getting punished. So <laughs> anyway, um, thank you for, uh, for the invitation. I, I'm delighted to, to, to be back here, and, uh, and I'm particularly delighted to be able to talk about, uh, about Bolivia and uh, um, to sort of reflect on what has been happening in Bolivia, but more, more than anything else, really to look at it from the perspective of what is happening vis-a-vis uh, -vis relations with the United States, uh, uh, and uh, in a context, of course, that has been both interesting and somewhat problematic. Um, I'm, uh, I'm trying uh, in, the, in the next few uh, weeks to, to complete a, a manuscript on, uh, on Bolivia, which uh, will hopefully be published uh, uh, within, the, within the next year, uh, which covers many of the themes that, uh, that I'll be talking about today. This is a very long uh, PowerPoint presentation, but I won't go in detail through every single uh, one of the slides. I will leave this presentation here so anybody that wants to, uh, to, uh, to look at it, critique it, uh, uh, offer suggestions and the like, uh, I would very much uh, welcome them. Um, it's very hard uh, in countries like Bolivia right now, and really at, at any point, to be 
to assume the, let's say, the, uh, the American uh, professorship role of trying to be completely objective uh, related to, uh, to particularly profound processes of change. And I think it's, it's, it's very clear that uh, uh, I have a point of view here, uh, not only because I'm a Bolivian, but also because of the, cir the circumstances that, that are unfolding uh, in Bolivia. So I've, I've titled this talk, uh, Evo Morales, Bolivian Democracy and U.S. Policy. And I, I asked the question, still on the brink, in reference to an article I wrote uh, a few years ago, two years ago, for the Council on Foreign Relations called Bolivia on the Brink. And it was an article that created an awful lot of controversy, an awful lot of controversy both in Bolivia and among the academic and particularly the NGO community, which thought that I unnecessarily took on the government of Evo Morales and sided with the opposition. Uh, so I want I want to say that uh, you know the, the whole notion of Bolivia being on the brink has been uh, has been uh, taken to task and uh, those very the very same uh, uh, organizations that criticized me uh, about three months ago wrote an article called uh, Bolivia on the cliff or something along those lines so uh, you know I'm uh, I think I'm sort of uh, either they're moving in my direction or uh, my original argument was somewhat correct. Um, let me uh, just sort of take you through through uh, through this presentation by, by looking essentially at the following premise and the sets of questions. The U.S. has not been very good about responding to revolutionary change in in the region, and uh, I'm particularly guided by the work of Cole Blazier, at uh, my my one of my mentors at the University of Pittsburgh, in the in the famous book called The Hovering Giant which essentially looked at how uh, the United States responded to revolutionary change throughout the Cold War. And Cole Blazier, of course, identified a number of responses that the United States had to revolutionary change, ranging from trying to overthrow regimes to funding exiles to actually establishing militaries, uh, or let's call them counter-revolutionary forces, such as the Contras in, in Nicaragua, for example, uh, in the 1980s. Uh, but most of the concern by scholars about revolutionary change and how the U.S. responded to revolutionary change occurred within the framework of the Cold War, or let's say even before the Cold War, uh, responses to, to Mexico and so on. Uh, but this is really the first time that I think scholars are looking at how the United States has been responding to what is called democratic revolutionary change or revolutionary change that is being undertaken by individuals who have come to power not by the violent overthrow of the ancient regime, not by, uh, by coups, but essentially via the ballot and have come to, into office and have pursued an agenda of fundamental uh, and transformational change. And that, that I think is you know, the, the, the main task at least for me is trying to understand how is it that, that's, that, that, uh, that that is occurring in a country like Bolivia? So three questions I want, to, I want to ask and try to address. How has the U.S. responded to revolutionary change with these elected leaders over the course of the last decade? Does this response differ in any way from the way in which the U.S. responded to revolutionary change during the Cold War? And 
the final question is, will the outcome differ? In other words, you know, we were in some measure able to, to either undermine and force revolutionary governments to either end the processes of fundamental change or to democratize, some might say, or in fact we may have even ended them in, uh, in, uh, in coups and, or, or, or counter coups and the like. So the real interesting question I think in the end is will the outcome differ? And I guess it boils down to will, will Evo Morales outlast uh, the efforts uh, uh, of US, US policy? Or, and, and again, first we have to understand what the US is doing in the region. So the focus obviously is, is Evo Morales. Now, the, the structure of the presentation is really simple. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you some background on Bolivian democracy, not too much. Uh, I'll talk about the emergence of Evo Morales. I want to talk a little bit about what Evo Morales understands by a democratic revolution. And then we'll get into the nitty-gritty of it and talk about Evo Morales and U.S. policy and the responses to democratic revolutions. And then we'll conclude with uh, this discussion of are we still on the brink or are there any policy alternatives under President Obama? Now, this is kind of, I don't know if you can see much of that. Most of you are young and can still see. Uh, the, those of you who, who uh, I won't go through each and, each and every uh, uh, dimension of this. Let me just uh, throw out a few uh, ideas. One is this notion that Bolivia underwent a transition to liberal representative democracy in the mid-1980s. Following years of military authoritarian rule, military authoritarian rule that was in place in Bolivia from 1964 until, until 1982. But this was a process, in fact, of reaction to the, the revolution of 1952. One of the most important revolutionary processes in the hemisphere Although, if you look at the Bolivian Revolution, there is, there, in fact, there's still very little literature of significance, not like the Mexican or the Cuban or even the Nicaraguan uh, Revolution. One of the most, in my view, one of the least studied revolutions and one of the most important in the region. But the revolution launched a process of state reform, and it also launched the process of nation building and state building. I know there's some of you in the political science department here interested in state formation. Bolivia, over the last four to five decades, has really gone undergone three attempts at state building. The revolution, which failed or was frozen, as James Malloy, my mentor, uh, wrote. Uh, the military reaction, which also failed at constructing a state. And then a real attempt at constructing liberal representative democracy, which also, in my view, failed from 85 to 2005. And so, but in essence, what characterized this period, a period of trying to construct a state, uh, where Bolivian political culture was largely uh, authoritarian, where the first option of Bolivian leaders has always been authoritarianism, and most of us who studied the period of democracy have always argued that democracy, liberal democracy in the 1980s, was democracy by default. It wasn't the first option of, Bolivian, of the Bolivian elite, of Bolivian leaders, but democracy has always been what we've backed into. But our first option, both on the part of revolutionary movements like the MNR, the military, and now you will see what I argue is that 
the mass is, is another experiment with movimientismo, another authoritarian attempt at constructing the state. Uh, but in essence, not, not really anything new. And so perhaps the, the interesting notion here is that this old American adage or British adage perhaps of, you know, the more things change, the more they, they stay the same. In Bolivia, democracy has been a second thought, a, always the outcome sort of by default. And uh, more importantly, the first option has been authoritarianism. And authoritarianism uh, in trying to construct modes of representation that were largely corporatist, not based on individual representation. So in Bolivia, it really matters more who you are than what you believe. Right? In other words, you are what the state recognizes you to be in terms of your ethnicity or in terms of what particular social group you belong to or what particular labor organization uh, you belong to. So corporatism is deeply ingrained in Bolivian political, uh, in Bolivian political culture. And that corporatism, of course, goes hand in hand with his preference for authoritarian solutions. Now, let me then, uh, having, having said that, that the, the democratization process of the, of the late 1970s and well into, uh, 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 you know, for, for, for just simply for, for the periodization, I would say that Bolivia underwent democratization while it initiated the process in the late 1970s. It really only took root in the 1980s and lasted, give or take, a few months until uh, around uh, October of 2003. All right. Uh, now, what I what I would say is that uh, under under the liberal uh, attempt at constructing democracy, uh, several things occurred. On the one hand, liberal Democrats had to deal first and foremost with the most profound crisis of the Bolivian state, characterized by an extreme process of hyperinflation, 26,000 percent hyperinflation in 1984-85, at least as measured by Jeff Sachs uh, at now at Columbia, then at Harvard, who worked on the stabilization plan in Bolivia in 1985. Um, the joke in Bolivia in, uh, in the 1980s uh, when, when I was writing my first book was that it was cheaper to take a taxi than it was a bus because, uh, you know, you always pay the bus when you get on. Uh, you pay the taxi when you get off. Well, by the time you reached your destination, you know, the currency had devaluated already, so it was cheaper. Uh, and, uh, and frankly, you know, uh, there's probably, it's not just anecdotal, but empirical for those of you who are economists. If you calculate 26,000% hyperinflation, probably devaluation by the second in the end. Uh, we were all millionaires, too, right? Uh, but uh, in, in the end, of course, that process culminated in, in, a, in what I think was uh, perhaps Bolivia had to respond first and foremost to the immediacy of the crisis, of the economic crisis, but also in the context of multiple other challenges that were, that were uh, coming to the fore. Uh, not only the crisis of, of the political model, in other words, how to respond to everything that Bolivians wanted, greater representation, greater political freedom, a whole series of things, uh, but also how to respond to the urgency of the economic crisis, and at the same time how to respond to pressures, external pressures, which in the case of Bolivia were largely led by the United States and largely led by the U.S.'s urgency to respond to the growth of the, of the coca and the cocaine economy, 
and, and an economy that in the context of hyperinflation became increasingly important as a way to survive the, the process of, of crisis. So, so in that context then, the way in which Bolivia found a formula to respond was a combination with a little bit of, of liberal democracy through ruling pacts between the major political parties and uh, an authoritarian executive-centered decision-making process that imposed uh, particularly what is now commonly called neoliberalism. I don't use the term neoliberalism because I think it's ideologically charged. I've all often used the term market-oriented reforms, uh, and I know that, that that, to some people, is, is just uh, picking um, you know, very, very fine points. I think Bolivia, if anything, was of the countries in the region, and, and this is, again, a, 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 I think it's based you know, more on the research that I've done, is probably a country that did not have a full-blown system of, of, uh, of market opening, even of neoliberalism in the classic sense. And, and, I'll, and I'll talk about that very, very, very quickly in a moment. Uh, but politically speaking, while neoliberalism per se was successful in ending hyperinflation and in gaining Bolivia a very prominent place internationally, I mean, it, in fact, some would say that it made Jeff Sachs. Jeffrey Sachs was a, a very, very uh, fine and very distinguished young professor at Harvard, but many people believe that Bolivia made him into the international star that he is today. Because of the package that stabilized Bolivia, uh, the Bolivian economy, he went then on to, you know, he went on to work in Russia, he went on to work in Poland, he went on to work in, in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. And, and today, by the way, believes things much different than what he did in 1985 when I met him. So, uh, but uh, the point is that the package itself worked. The package itself brought hyperinflation to a dramatic halt. But the debate at the time was important. The debate was largely, what are the social costs of hyperinflation? They are much higher than the social costs of stabilization. Again, because of the taxi-bus kind of relationship, right? that hyperinflation penalized the poor much more than the wealthy, all right? And, and so that was, that was essentially uh, Jeffrey's argument that it was important to bring hyperinflation under control because of the social costs associated with, with hyperinflation. Well, the, the program was successful. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a period of two years, Bolivia restored economic growth and then est established the basis for something that Bolivia had really never had before, which was the presence of foreign investment. And Bolivia, by the end of the 1990s, uh, for the first time, foreign investment in Bolivia became significant. By, by 2000, 1% of all foreign investment uh, in Latin America went to Bolivia, about a billion uh, to uh, between a billion and a billion and a half dollars per year. Not much, comparatively speaking, uh, but a lot by Bolivian standards. So, it opened Bolivia up in terms of, the, of its economy, and it ended that state-centered model, uh, that state development model that the revolution had launched in 1952. And the U.S., of course, was very happy with this model, very happy in terms of pushing this, this, uh, uh, this, this way of organizing the, the economy. Now, um, since I'm not an economist, uh, or, or at least I don't claim to be, 
Um, I, I won't look specifically at whether you know it was good or bad and what have you. I, I'll just refer you to both the works by Sachs and Juan Antonio Morales, uh, a very well-known economist, but, but also the works of, of others who have studied uh, problems of inequality and problems of poverty in Bolivia. And I think the argument generally is today that neoliberalism had a dramatic impact on poverty and inequality, that it made Bolivia more poor and more unequal. The, unfortunately, I think, you know, uh, uh, perhaps like Ronald Reagan would say, don't bother me with the facts, uh, but the facts are that uh, that argument doesn't really hold water. Poverty, in fact, was reduced during that period, not, not like the, the situation in Chile, for example, where you do have dramatic, dramatic poverty reduction, but poverty was reduced. Uh, but inequality essentially remained the same. But Bolivia's inequality, and measured through, a, through the Gini coefficient, Bolivia's Gini coefficient is in fact better than that of Colombia and, uh, and Brazil. All right? So Bolivia is unequal, but it's certainly not the most unequal place in, uh, in, uh, in Latin America. And so I think, you know, rather than looking at this from an economic point of view and trying to, to, to say it was the economy that led to where we are today, I think it's important to understand the political dynamics. And the political dynamics are really rooted in the formation of pacted democracy and in the way in which pacted democracy dealt with, let's call them, the informal political system. And an informal political system that was not only within the labor union, the old labor union movement that was essentially obliterated by, by, by market-oriented reforms in 1985, but also by the formation in central Bolivia of a very significant coca growers movement, which in terms, in functional terms, replaced the mining federation as the principal articulation of, let's call it, discontent in, in the country. And so what it would, in that context, then, it's, ra it's rather interesting because I think you have two, two ways in which they in which this discontent was, was sort of channeled. On the one hand, it sought uh, participation within the channels provided by representative democracy. So it's very clear, for example, that representative democracy led to the formation of a large number of indigenous parties. And in fact, even the election of an indigenous vice president from 1993 to 1997. It also led to the formation of a major, major labor union, a uh, uh, peasant labor union, which may sound kind of contradictory, but the, the, the Confederación Sindical de Trabajadores Únicos. Uh, uh, that that, uh, that uh, confederation uh, was, while you know, in some measure linked to the coca growers movement, it was largely independent. So there was a proliferation of ways that didn't really tie into the formality of pacted democracy. And so politics became really rooted in the distribution of patronage among the leading political parties. And that became its central Achilles heel. So on the one hand, formal democracy talked about having democracy through voting, and voting, in fact, ratified them in, in, in elections from, from 1985 through 2003, but at the same time, it was the formation of these groups that voted, and voted two, three percent for these outsiders, 
and then essentially began to grow, began to grow and to understand the significance of the vote. And the significance of the vote became really important because not only did they realize that they were not going to have to rely on revolutionary movements and that they could, in fact, use the vote to achieve political power. And that becomes embodied fundamentally in the mass, the creation of the, of the socialist, uh, the movement toward socialism founded by, by President Morales in the mid-1990s, and uh, which now, of course, has been in, in power over the last three and a half years. Now, this anti-systemic sentiment, however, also had another, another face, and that was the violent face of it, because I think, you know, we, we often uh, run, I think, the, 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 the risk of, of sort of uh, romanticizing what the mass is and what the coca growers movement is and what, uh, and what uh, uh, you know, indigenism represents. Uh, first and foremost, you know, while I said that there were a, a number of, of, of outsider groups, and particularly indigenous political parties, indigenism is something that was really uh, very, very much outside of the realm of the coca growers movement. The coca growers movement was a, is a, a typical corporatist union, very much along the lines of movimientismo, traditional movimientismo, very, very decoupled or delinked from from uh, uh, notions of indigenismo. That's why uh, it's not it's not unusual, and, and I think it's certainly not surprising to see the the very deep division that that occurs today in Bolivia, and which is again surfacing its head between Evo Morales and uh, 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 Victor Hugo Cárdenas, the the, the real uh, uh, intellectual of Bolivian indigenism but also with individuals like Felipe Quispe, who represent more of the, the, let's say, the violent arm of Bolivian indigenism, and then others who represent the, the indigenism from the, from the, from the or Orient, from the, from the, uh, from the eastern um, uh, uh, part of Bolivia, Marcial Fabricano uh, in particular. And so, so I think, you know, it's, it's rather romantic in my view to see Evo Morales as the embodiment of all indigenous forms. And, and I'll, I'll get to that in, in just a moment, because... Uh, that romanticism created something which I think is really quite, quite important. It was able to bring together very disparate groups into a coherent political movement. It brought together urban sectors, it brought together rural sectors, and it brought together, obviously, uh, a large indigenous population that, while it voted, still continued not only to feel excluded, but which was, in fact, uh, excluded from the benefits of, of liberal representative democracy. Okay? Now, uh, let's also note that Evo Morales became a deputy in 1997, was elected to Congress, and from Congress was able to use the channels of representative democracy to try to, and in fact, effectively organize the mass and become a political force. It's also important, and this is where, where the controversy emerges, you know, that, that this is a movement that in using both the tools of democracy and the tools of insurgency uh, often relied on violence, often relied on violence. So it wasn't just the way in which the state responded to them, but the way in which they responded to the state. And so, for example, one of the charges against Evo Morales was the kidnapping and an assassination of four police officers and the spouse of one of the police officers in, in, in the year 2001. 
all right, which led to the expulsion of Evo Morales from Congress in, in, 2000, in 2001. And that is something I'll come back to in a moment. So, you know, again, uh, and also let's, let's, let's note that the vice president of Bolivia, uh, uh, a, a man from Cochabamba, a uh, white man from Cochabamba who became educated as a mathematician in, in Mexico, uh, is the, the real philosopher of Bolivian indigenism, at least of this government's indigenism. And he, of course, spent five years in jail for, uh, for terrorism, all right, for, 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 for terrorist activities. So, so violence is something that, you know, that, that is not strange, neither to the way in which the state responded to the coca growers movement, and it's certainly not strange to the way in which these movements articulated a response to the state. All right. So let's, let's just say then that uh, uh, for, for, for purposes of moving this along, uh, I want to focus just a, a moment on the coca cocaine issue. Uh, the U.S., in, in the context of Bolivian democracy, had three basic, let's call them, pillars of, uh, of, of, of policy. One was institution building, promoting democracy. And so it promoted the reform of, of the judiciary, the reform of Congress, the reform of the executive branch, the reform of political parties, and so on. And, and I think, you know, uh, uh, did so quite effectively and quite well. I participated as a consultant on, on many of those, uh, of those uh, uh, experiments, and, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not shy to, uh, to, to, to say that, although I've been accused in Bolivia of, because of that role of having become an, an agent of the CIA and trying to overthrow President Morales. Uh, the, second, uh, the second dimension of this is, is obviously support for neoliberalism, support for market-oriented reforms. But as happened always under the Cold War, where the pillars were essentially the same, right? Promotion of democracy, promotion of economic reform, but counterinsurgency. In the Cold War, counterinsurgency made promotion of democracy and economic reform secondary to the approach to containing communism. Very much under, under, under liberal democracy in Bolivia, the U.S. approach prioritized or even conditioned support for democracy and support for, for market reforms to Bolivian, uh, let's say, uh, uh, responses, positive responses to U.S. initiatives on the drug side. And that, to me, uh, is, as, as we now know, the unintended consequences, or perhaps the great paradox is, that those very policies are the ones which strengthened movements like Evo Morales and eventually contributed to his coming to office. There are other factors, no doubt, but I think that's certainly one of the most important dimensions of how it is that Evo strengthened himself so much. Now, just a very, very, very uh, a brief uh, experiment here. Uh, I'm often, in, uh, whenever I give talks in Bolivia and elsewhere, and you know, I'm often uh, accused of saying, "Well, you know, uh, uh, I'm the lone defender of, uh, of, of, of neoliberal democracy." And, uh, but I think it's important to, to say that there are some legacies of neoliberalism and of Bolivian democracy that are important to note, and that were really important in terms of democratizing the country. All right. Uh, I think it's important to, 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 for example, recognize that the revolution, despite its authoritarianism, was also profoundly democratized. Universal suffrage was a major gain. All right? uh, agrarian reform was a major uh, advancement as well. And in the end, you know, people like Victor Hugo Cárdenas and even Evo Morales are children of the 1952 revolution. All right? 
it created a new Bolivian uh, that would not have ever emerged without the 1952 revolution. By the same token, uh, I think it's important to recognize the significance of the 1982 through 2000 period of democratization. And not so much on the market side, but certainly in terms of the emergence of indigenous parties, in terms of a popular participation law, which I think one of the greatest contributions to Bolivian democracy was a decentralization program that was, that was uh, 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 approved by, by legislation in 1994 called popular participation, which, by the way, is now used in the Dominican Republic. It's used in Peru. It's used in Ghana. It's been, it's been a very, very well-received uh, 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 program internationally. Decentralized the state. Trans, uh, uh, it basically transferred power and resources to municipal governments around the country. The paradox of that is that those resources were the ones that were used to strengthen the mas in the chapari, and, and it was used to strengthen, which was the objective, right? The objective was decentralizing, transforming Bolivia into, in other words, taking democracy to the, to the local level, all right? Uh, a very transparent electoral system. I think Bolivia proudly could say in the mid-1990s that it had virtually no electoral fraud, virtually no electoral fraud, coming from a long tradition of electoral fraud, and, uh, and reforms to the judiciary, particularly in the context of, and this, this to many of you, of course, is not foreign, you know, uh, in the context, for example, of the crisis of public security today, it's often in, my, in our surveys that we find that most Latin Americans when you talk about how do you deal with, with crime and so on, you know, let's throw the military out on the street, let's arrest all the, all the suspected criminals and, and throw away the key, or let's beat them up and torture them and so on. Uh, during this period, uh, I think one of the fascinating things is the way in which Bolivia constructed a judiciary that both did uh, uh, things like creating uh, human rights, uh, an office of human rights ombudsman, but a, a whole series of other ombudsman's offices, and uh, it created a constitutional tribunal to deal with issues of, you know, of judicial review and a code of criminal procedure that fundamentally was about respecting habeas corpus. All right? And I think it's important to, 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 to rescatar this, right? to rescue these things, because they are, they are gains that I think are, are really running the risk now of completely dis disappearing. And as I said earlier, the very election of Evo Morales was a victory for liberal representative democracy. I think those who claim that Evo Morales, for example, came to office uh, by some fluke, no, I think Evo Morales would have come to office or somebody like Evo would have come to office at some point, uh, if not in 2005, soon thereafter, had the process followed a, a, regular, a regular pattern. Okay, uh, I won't, these are, these are the presidents of the period, I won't go into that. So, uh, let me just then very quickly, and um, I have a few more minutes here, so, so I, I, I do want your comments. Um, um, let, let me say that, you know, what are the factors then in, in summary that, that led to the emergence of Evo Morales? Uh, an economic crisis, no doubt. An economic crisis from 1998 to 2004. Um, and governments, and democratic governments, one of the things that they really do not want is to come into office when, when the economy is bad. And Pre President Banzer came into office when the economy was bad, died in, in 2001 when the economy was still bad, 
and then President Sanchez de Lozada came back into office in 2003, not like when he came into office in 1993 uh, under, under an economic upturn, but really when the economy was probably in its worst moment. But it's interesting. Uh, during this very same time period was when Bolivia was most draconian in its anti-drug plan. And not only by the imposition of the U.S., but by largely the design of a, of a plan called the Dignity Plan, which essentially wiped out the coca industry in the Chapari, all right, in the central valley of Bolivia. And it thrust thousands of people into unemployment, creating uh, a very large pattern of unemployment, growing the informal sector. People who had flooded into the Chapare in the 1980s, responding to the to the to hyperinflation, now found themselves either returning to the Chapare, pardon me, to the cities, or moving into other coca-growing areas. All right, uh, that's number one. Number number three, number two. No, number three is the clientelism, the perverse pattern of clientelism. Pacted democracy had this way in which while in 1985 the pact was about saving Bolivia, right, and where perhaps, you know, corruption and patronage was, was kind of secondary to this overwhelming goal to save Bolivia from hyperinflation, by 2003, right, these grandiose notions of saving Bolivia were, were really secondary to the distribution of political patronage. And that was probably, in my view, one of the most important factors that contributed to the final uh, uh, bullet here, the delegitimation of democracy. This, uh, this notion, when, 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 you measured, when you measured it in public opinion polls in terms of confidence in institutions, 78% of Bolivians didn't believe in political parties. All right? And in Congress, in the judiciary. So the very institutions of formal democracy were rejected by most Bolivians. And that of course, I think is, is really critical. The privatization plans, uh, water utilities in Cochabamba, the insurrection of Cochabamba of, of the year 2000, and subsequently that in, coupled with a delegitimation delegit of, the, of the political process led to this overwhelming concern that, that especially Sanchez de Lozada had sold the crown jewels and was returning in 2003 to finish the job. Right? And especially because the discovery of natural, of hum, huge reserves, natural gas reserves, Bolivia by 2000, and largely to the investment from privatization, uh, from capitalization of the hydrocarbons industry, uh, was second only to Venezuela with 51, 52 trillion cubic feet in reserves. All right? Huge amount. Certainly nothing compared to what's in Russia or, or or, in, uh, or in, uh, in, even in Holland, but certainly huge uh, by Latin American standards. And, and everybody assumed that, you know, here was, was, uh, was uh, the neoliberal president who was coming back essentially to consolidate this, this theft of, of, Bolivian, of Bolivian resources. Uh, we talked about the poor impact that economic policy had had on poverty reduction, reduction of unemployment and the like. There's some additional factors that I think are important that because the formal Democrats, let's call them, the traditional parties were no longer an option, okay, because market-oriented reforms had essentially run their course, okay, because of the incapacity to, to, to govern, all right, many, many fundamental and very, very tragic mistakes were made. 
and probably the most, the most uh, uh, catastrophic of them was the response in 2003 by, by President Sanchez de Lozada to what was a civil insurrection, all right? orchestrated as early as, as early 2003 in February and that culminated with his resignation and the death of 59 Bolivians in, in, in mid-October. Right, when the response by the government was to send the military because there was no, no police force to speak of, and so it sent a bunch of conscripts to put down a, uh, the invasion of, of La Paz by miners and other social groups that were essentially asking for the resignation of President Sanchez de Lozada. They obtained their objective, but not before uh, the, the, the killing of 59, 59 Bolivians. In terms of U.S. policy, what was the problem? U.S. policy had put all of its eggs in the neoliberal and liberal representative democracy basket. And by 2005, uh, of course, uh, the U.S. had no other options in Bolivia. And especially, and, and I'll just tell an, a, a brief anecdote, I, I conducted a poll in, in June of 2004 uh, and uh, went into the ambassador's residence. Uh, I was invited to give a talk. and. Uh, uh, I gave a talk presenting the results of this, of this survey, and in the survey we, you know, we, we basically concluded that Evo Morales was going to win the elections in December. And the ambassador at the time said, you're absolutely wrong, this can't happen, this is your, your, your data is incorrect, and so he called in Mitch Seligson, who was also in town then, um, and in the meeting we, the, the, you know, we, we looked at the data, we looked at the sample, and said, well, you know, uh, it looks, looks bad. Uh, the traditional uh, politicians called me irresponsible. They, they said I was, you know, my polling data was wrong, that, that the numbers were wrong, that in fact uh, uh, Jorge Quiroga was, was going to win. Uh, well, in the end, again, I, I, you know, I hate to say it, but uh, you know, they, were, they were fundamentally wrong, and, uh, and, and Evo Morales won in 2005. Now, how revolutionary is Evo? Okay. Well, his government is really one in which, you know, there's this notion of, you know, ending all forms of both internal and external colonization. And this has become an interesting theoretical debate. And there's a lot of literature here in the United States that uh, uh, Sinclair Thompson and others have, have written. I think it's very, very important uh, uh, literature. Uh, but, you know, I think it's... We always run the risk of saying, you know, whatever academics say about uh, about some, you know, academics. Unfortunately, we're always discovering the wheel many, many centuries after it's been invented, right? And uh, so, you know, I, I think that what to look for explanations about Evo's degree of revolutionary revolutionaryism uh, um, in uh, in some of the literature, particularly this debate about coloni colonization, internal and external, is probably not the right direction to go in. Uh, I think you know that uh, what, when you look specifically at at, uh, at how uh, revolutionary it is, you really have to look at the eclectic nature of this government. It's a combination of old style Marxists, middle class mestizo, and uh, and as we use the term in, in, in Bolivia, blancoide uh, 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 intellectuals, right? Uh, such as Alvaro Garcia Linera. If you look at the cabinet, there really is today only one indigenous person, okay? Maybe two, the Minister of, the minister of Labor. But uh, by and large, we're talking about the old left, which is largely directing the fortunes of Bolivia. 
and which has captured Evo Morales, a man who comes from the coca growers movement, so go back to what I said earlier, not an indigenous, certainly not an indigenous, okay? somebody who is a latecomer to indigenism, and somebody who barely speaks Quechua and Aymara. All right? In fact, uh, you know, uh, he practices his speeches and, uh, and gives good speeches in Aymara and Quechua, but they're very, very short, very to the point. Uh, but he does not speak Quechua or Aymara. And, and, uh, and uh, just a brief anecdote, a few, a few weeks ago, Victor Hugo Cárdenas, who's now announced his, his run for the presidency, was debating Sacha Llorenti, all right? Very, very indigenous name, right? Uh, of, of Italian origin, the, the, the human rights guy, uh, and uh, in charge of the, the, this ministry for social movements. And uh, so in the middle of the debate, uh, um, Victor Hugo Cárdenas turned to him and started speaking to him in Aymara, right? And, uh, and this guy sat there and, uh, and listened. This is a government official, sat there and listened and listened. And then Victor Hugo stopped and said, you're not understanding a thing I'm saying. And the guy said, yeah, I understand a little bit. And so Victor Hugo said, well, <clears throat> would you tell me what I just told you? And uh, the guy said, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand Aymara or Quechua. And so Victor Hugo's answer was, well, you need to be fired because it's a violation of the new constitution. Under the new constitution, to be a member of the government or to be a public functionary, you have to speak one of the, of the 36 indigenous languages, all right? And Sacha Llorenti, I think, speaks Italian, okay? It's not necessarily... A, but that illustrates, I think, where, 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 you know, where, 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 this, where the debate is going. There's a lot of lip service to indigenism by people who are using indigenism in ideological terms and not even in, the, in, the, in these notions even of Sinclair, of Sinclair Thompson and others. Uh, the other thing, of course, is you know when people say, well, it's very revolutionary, it's the reliance on Cuba and Venezuela. And I think the big mistake is to look at everything that happens in Bolivia sort of as an expansion of what's happening in Venezuela and Cuba. Certainly there are Venezuelans there. Certainly they've spent a lot of money in Bolivia. And I'm, you know, in, a, in a sense, I think I'm glad that they, that they did. Uh, I'm also you know, not critical of Cuban presence because in, 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 the, in the end, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the literacy programs, you know, uh, they weren't there and somebody had to complete the literacy uh, objectives of the 1952 revolution. And so I think it's, it's wrong to, to, uh, to make that the flag of, of the opposition. Uh, so, you know, I, and, and as I said earlier, Bolivia would have happened, what is happening in Bolivia today would have happened regardless of Cuban or Venezuelan presence. So I, I wouldn't look at that too much. What has happened in Bolivia, though, is this, this refounding of Bolivia uh, is very problematic. That notion that I just talked about, this new constitution in a constitutional assembly, a failed constitutional assembly, really has to be looked at in the context of what has happened. And this is where I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm saying that uh, you know, I question whether, I think, again, we're back at that old place. We're still opting for authoritarianism. And we're now clothing ourselves with this language of democracy. And the Constitutional Assembly is supposed to have been democratic. But the very process of approving the new Constitution followed some very undemocratic steps. The entire way uh, was a violation of the rules of the game. The entire way was a violation of you know, basic rules of, of cohabitation with the opposition. 
and in large measure because what, what Bolivians today understand by democracy is majority rule regardless of what minorities think. And that is problematic. But in essence, you know, from an institutionalist, a political scientist in particular, I'm very concerned about the closing down of the judiciary. I'm very concerned about habeas corpus. There is no due process in Bolivia to speak of, especially if, uh, if you are a member of the opposition. I'm very, very concerned of this notion of, of communal, uh, of let's call it community justice, which led not only to the burning of, of uh, Victor Hugo Cárdenas' house in the, in, on the lake, but also just two days ago to the flagellation. You know, I mean, most of you perhaps saw the, 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 uh, the, the movie about, you know, the flagellation of, of Christ, uh, you know, but this is a, a, a modern-day contemporary flagellation of Marcial Fabricano for basically, in both cases, for what? For having led the opposition to the Constitution. And Marcial Fabricano is in a, in a hospital today, apparently has brain damage from, uh, from, the, fla from the flagellation. And this is an indigenous leader from, from the lowlands of Bolivia. Uh, the, the absolute uh, you know, uh, assault on all political in, uh, institutions. In other words, anything that came before 2005 was part of a regime of apartheid. And in the context, of course, then it's okay to not only not behave democratically, but to tear it down. And that, I think, concerns me. In the context of the collapse of political parties, the regional opposition, in particular, has come to be, has re really been the opposition. And that, of course, has led to all of these questions about Bolivia being led by, you know, Croatian, Hungarian, you know, uh, terrorists who are trying to, to promote Bolivian separatism. Uh, mo our, our polls, as I've, as I've told uh, our, my, my colleagues here, you know, our polls show that the people from Santa Cruz are first and foremost Bolivians, and only secondarily do they see themselves as, as, as gambas or from Santa Cruz. Uh, yet the way we've, we've characterized them in the, in the context now, you can't open an American newspaper or a foreign newspaper without seeing Bolivian separatists. There is no separatist movement to speak of in the country. All right. And then the, the outright assault on the media, which again is, uh, you know, the, the, the attack on the media, everything from not only President Morales embarrassing journalists uh, before every, uh, their, their, their peers, but also simply not even giving, uh, President Morales now only gives press conferences to, to, the, to the foreign media because he says that Bolivian journalists are, you know, all bought by the opposition. And, you know, and again, I think that makes it, uh, all right. Very quickly, what does this mean in terms of U.S. policy? The U.S. mission was the largest in Latin America, second only to Colombia in 2005. All right. I noted it exerted enormous influence from 1985 onward, enormous influence, intervening often in local politics from you know vetting, uh, that was their term, right? Vetting politicians. <laughs> If you were accused of being a narco-trafficker or having any links to narcotics, you were immediately purged from, from congressional lists or even from nominations. We revoked the visas of former presidents and, and, and so on. Uh, I mean, very, very significant relationship there. The presence of the DEA, the presence of U.S. military forces and the like, that was absolutely true. And in large measure, Evil is probably correct in pointing out those, those flaws of American presence. Uh, the close relationship with Chavez and with the Castro brothers, of course, has really irked the United States, especially under the Bush administration. Uh, 
But what is apparently irking this administration is the very strong relationship that Evo Morales has developed with Iran. And that, I think, you know, is uh, Iran is now in the Chapare, even constructing, apparently, a, a industrializing coca. Uh, but the principal accusation uh, against the United States is the harboring, is, as their terms, of uh, three fugitives of Bolivian justice, as they, as they call it. One is former President Sanchez de Lozada, the former Minister of Defense, Carlos Sanchez Versaín, and, and uh, another former minister, uh, Carlos Berindoague, uh, all three of whom have made established residence in the United States. Only Carlos Sanchez Versaín is is, has been granted political asylum. Uh, but in essence, their fear has been that they will never get a fair trial in Bolivia. Why? Because the charge against them was, is really a charge brought by then-deputy Evo Morales. And Evo Morales, of course, has his own part in the 2003 insurrection. And so the, the debate, I think it's a, it's a very divisive de debate in Bolivia because it's clear that 59 people died, uh, but it was not genocide. And uh, the accusation against Sanchez de Lozada and his entire cabinet is that it was genocide. These people were not killed because they were indigenous. They were not killed because even, even because they were members of the MAS. They were killed by an untrained military force that overreacted and shot into the crowd, and there were stray bullets all over the place, which ended up in the tragic death of 59 Bolivians. All right? Uh, and so, you know, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult situation because May 18th, the, 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 the trial against these individuals was supposed, to be, was supposed to begin. And just this week, the government of Peru has granted asylum to three former ministers. And that has now created a lot of tension between Peru and Bolivia. So uh, there you have it in a, in a sense, you know, the U.S., the U.S., other than doing all of these things, and, and the accusations are, are I'll, I'll deal with them very, 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 very quickly here. Um, you, you can read them later. But everything from having tortured Evo Morales in, in the early part of the 1990s, which is true, not, not, not the U.S., but U, Bolivian, Bolivian U.S. trained anti-drug forces, to uh, having, for example, mo most recently, uh, uh, in, the, in the case of the Santa Cruz terrorists, right, uh, the, the U.S. was probably uh, naive about how, how it responded to all of these accusations. But, you know, uh, things like, like Ambassador Goldberg meeting with opposition groups, all right? U.S. ambassadors meet with opposition groups all over the world. That doesn't mean that they're funding the opposition, but yet the charge is that they were funding the opposition. To uh, a silly member of the, of, the, of the embassy in Bolivia whose girlfriend was asked to bring bullets in the diplomatic pouch, because this guy was a was a you know loved to go to the shooting range to practice shooting, and so of course when when she got to the airport, this poor this poor girl was arrested uh, with you know 105 bullets or something, and of course this was 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 brought up as you know evidence of you know of the U.S. sending in bullets by diplomatic pouch to overthrow the government. So, uh, but in the end, uh, what what has happened is uh, let me let me just. Uh, just uh, very, very quickly uh, uh, say that the, the reactions have been, have been everything from orchestrating uh, a march on the U.S. Embassy and trying to burn it down to kick out the U.S. ambassador, 
to then firing the police commander who tried to control the mob, right? And firing, I mean, firing the, the, uh, the police commander for repressing peaceful demonstrators to tapping the phones and emails of, of, uh, of uh, members of the embassy, all right? And, and then eventually, in, uh, in the last uh, eight months, expelling USAID from the, Coca, from the, from the Chapare Valley, expelling Ambassador uh, Goldberg, coincidentally, on September 11th, right, make, to make the, the case much stronger, uh, prohibiting the activities of the CIA. I don't think the, the CIA probably you know, looks much at, at prohibitions to work anywhere, as we now know. Uh, and the DEA was kicked out in, in, in November. And then finally, as, as late as January, another diplomat, uh, Francisco Martinez, was, uh, was, was kicked out uh, uh, for, uh, for, again, meeting with members of the opposition. So uh, what has, uh, and this is the, the Bolivian evidence, uh, President Morales states that, you know, thanks to a few now patriotic officers, uh, uh, they've informed him how they prepared attempts on his life, uh, you know, uh, and the testimonies are there. But every time we ask for the testimonies, they never seem to surface. All right? they, they're just, uh, I'm, certain, I'm certain that they're there. But this notion that paramilitary groups exist in Bolivia that are, that are trying to, to, to overthrow him in collaboration with the fascist right and with the U.S. Embassy. What has been the attempt, uh, the, the response to, these, uh, to these, uh, these accusations? One, let's stay out of the way. All right? and, and here, you know... I'm, I'm being a little harsh, and I'll conclude on, the, on these, this observation. I think the U.S. has not been in, engaged in conspiracy. It's largely been engaged in incompetence. All right? I think the U.S. has been fundamentally incompetent in dealing with, with revolutionary change under democracy in Bolivia. Uh, USAID attempted to continue its, its, uh, its, uh, its institution-building efforts through uh, organizations like NED and the like, and of course, that has led to these to these accusations of working with the, with the uh, with the opposition. Uh, the U.S. expelled Ambassador Guzman uh, uh, in in retaliation for the expulsion, and uh, more recently, it decertified Bolivian efforts in the drug on, on the drug side. Although a national interest waiver is in place, which means that essentially nothing has happened. The U.S. is still authorizing collaboration, and probably the most important one is canceling the Andean Trade Preference Act which gave preferential uh, treatment to about 600 Bolivian products exported to the United States. And this has largely, in my view, penalized the Bolivian private sector, not the Bolivian government. All right? And uh, that, I think, is, is uh, the results are still... Now, are we headed in a new, in a new direction? Uh, is, uh, um, can we see anything different under President Obama? And uh, let me say here that, you know... Interestingly, this administration has shown great affinity for Bolivia. I should say Secretary Clinton. The Clintons have had an affinity for Bolivia going back to my days at the University of Arkansas. I was an undergraduate there in the 1970s, and the Clintons were the host family to many Bolivian students, and so I, I was fortunate enough to get to know them then. And they've always had this, this kind of uh, weak spot for Bolivians. And perhaps the weak spot today is, is ratified in the naming of two Bolivians uh, to the White House, uh, Cecilia Munoz to the Office of Hispanic Affairs in the, in the White House. And uh, just yesterday, somebody who's a good friend of yours, you were telling me, Maria, Maria Otero, uh, as the, the head of global affairs in the State Department, as, as, uh, as assistant secretary. So, so Bolivians, this is the moment for Bolivians in, the, in this administration. Uh, but 
there's been a meeting between Morales and Obama in Trinidad, a meeting that apparently went well, in which Obama basically condemned any assassination attempts against, uh, against uh, Morales or, or any other Democratic president. Morales was less gallant uh, and uh, you know, very much taking this, this cue from, from Chavez. He's continued his, his statements about uh, alleged U.S. involvement and has not been very, very much. It's like there's no orchestration between Morales and his foreign minister, in fact. Morales just often goes off and talks and talks and gets himself into trouble. And his foreign minister, the only indigenous, real indigenous person who has to correct uh, and, and, and try to re uh, resurrect this. Former President Carter was just in Bolivia, and he announced uh, he met with the opposition, with four governors and with President Morales. And before leaving, he announced that the U.S. would send a very high-level delegation next month and that probably we would exchange ambassadors again. Um, Bolivia has been calling for you know, a new way. It's, call, it's, it's established a trilateral minister, a tri-ministerial commission, and it calls for a mega acuerdo, a mega uh, agreement with the United States. And what are the elements of this mega agreement? Non-intervention in Bolivian affairs, the renewal of, of uh, USAID, but focused in terms of the national development plan that the, that the government has pushed, and mutual respect, which in fact has been something that the Americans are, are concerned about. The Americans, I think, are really tired of being called everything under the sun, so mutual respect is important. And Minister Choquehuanca has said, we want to fight the drug war, but under our direction, and he said we want USAID to coordinate directly with ministries, not as they have done in the past, which I think is also a correct thing. I mean, there was very little Bolivian accountability for U.S. presence in Bolivia. So in a sense, I think, you know, not everything that this government has done is, 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 is critical. Now, so my conclusion, did, did the U.S. respond differently? There's no evidence, in my view, that the U.S. has funded opposition groups uh, in, to overthrow Morales. There is evidence that the U.S. has funded groups like NED and NDI, National Democratic Institute, to promote democracy and institution building, to promote representative democracy. No. And as I said earlier, my, my concern, and perhaps is that, you know, it's really incompetence that characterizes especially the Bush administration. And I'm hoping now with a professional crew that has gone back into State Department that the response will be a little bit more professional. Will the outcome differ? Uh, and this is really where a lot more speculation, I think, is in place. I think Morales will continue to push, regardless of whether he achieves this mega acuerdo with Washington or not. Um, I think there will be ambassadors. Ambassadors will go back and forth very quickly, uh, in, probably in the next few months. And I think in the long run, the U.S. will have responded to Morales' movimientismo the very same way it responded to the movimientismo of the, of the 1950s. And that is, it will again fund Bolivian uh, experiments with, with reform, not necessarily with revolution. Thank you. Do we have time for, for questions? Do we have time for questions? Or? Yeah? Okay, great. Yes, sir. Yeah, good friend, good friends of mine. And yes. uh, if you do a word search on your project or theirs and substitute Correa for Morales and so forth, the, the, the countries aren't identical, obviously, right. for circumstances. But then here's my question for you. It seems that in the case of 
No, no, that's that's fine. We venture into yours all the time. We don't apologize. So, <laughs> um, your your question is a, is a very good one, and it really deals. Uh, you know, the the representative democracy uh, in parliamentary systems. Um, you know, and this is in fact Arturo Valenzuela, who was just named deputy uh, assistant secretary of state for for Latin American affairs. Uh, who was a consultant to Sanchez de Lozada in, in 1993, pushed for parliamentarism, um, getting rid of presidential systems, largely because of the, pre the, 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 the criticism that you have just made of, of, of presidential systems with very, very, uh, let's call them, atomized political party systems. Uh, and, uh, you know, the argument was that basically what you have in those systems is that... Uh, you maximize representation of minority groups, but you make it virtually impossible to form majorities to govern. There's no incentive to go. Right, right. And uh, Bolivia seemed to have found the formula in 1985 through pacted democracy, right? But in the end, as you noted, clientelism prevailed. And, uh, you know, it's usually rooted in the, in the notion of, of a, pr a proportional representation system that uh, you know, you establish thresholds. Five percent, for example, you had to have up to five percent. I mean, no, you couldn't be below five percent to retain your presence as a political party. Well, Bolivia went from having seventy-eight political parties in 1979 to having really a system where only three parties rotated power with very with smaller parties. And so, you know, so in a, in a sense, Bolivia seemed to have found the formula. But just like the pacts in Colombia and in Venezuela, the Frente Nacional and, uh, and the Pacto de Punto Fijo in, uh, in, in Venezuela, pacted democracy, what it essentially did was it, it, uh, it allowed for the rotation of patronage among basically a mestizo political elite, right? And it, it kept these other groups outside, although periodically trying to incorporate them. 
and you know through through things like popular participation and, and the like. But my my uh, my uh, my concern in the in the in, in in with your question is is more with uh, these. You know, Bolivia is a country where corporatism is really the essence of political culture. And so when you when you look at corporatism as the essence of political culture, and you try to impose liberal represent, representation on you know on this, which is based on individuals. In other words, you know, under liberal democracy, we theoretically are connected to the state by virtue of what we think, right? Not by virtue of what we are, right? Although increasingly we're corporatizing ourselves in this country as well, right? But what, what I'm saying is that in the Bolivian context, you know, in, in, in the party systems, there wasn't, you know, while there were indigenous parties, we never gave a quota for indigenous parties. Although I think you, you're, you're incorrect in, in saying that Bolivia didn't have any indigenous representation in Congress. In fact, as early as the 1950s, Bolivia had a large delegation of indigenous uh, members of Congress. I did my dissertation on the Bolivian Congress, so I interviewed you know, uh, many, 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 many uh, indigenous representatives. So again, it goes back to this myth about, uh, about Evo Morales is, the, is, uh, is Mandela and Bolivia had apartheid. Bolivia didn't have apartheid. Bolivia had inequality. Bolivia has poverty, but it certainly didn't have any, uh, 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 political apartheid. Uh, so uh, now, is Bolivia, how indigenous is Bolivia is the other question. And again, as a as a as a liberal positivist, uh, you know, uh, uh, and you know, un, unabashed, uh, I guess, uh, pollster. You know, uh, I make a living uh, doing polls these days. And and uh, you know, uh, when you ask the question in Bolivia of what do you consider yourself, most Bolivians consider themselves mestizos. Only twenty percent of Bolivians consider themselves indigenous, and less than forty percent of Bolivians speak an indigenous language, all right? And only 20% of Bolivian households speak a single indigenous language, all right? That's why this notion of, you know, of the Constitution saying that if you want to be a member of, of the government, you have to speak an indigenous language. By the way, you know, I think it's great because I speak a little bit of Aymara, but, you know, I'm not aspiring to any post. I don't think they're going to give me one. But, but the point is that, you know, I think we ought to rescue that, make that part of a positive element, not of, a, of, of something that, in fact, is used as discrimination against other sectors. But Ecuador is quite different. Ecuador has, you know, about 12 to 14 percent of the, of the country, which well, causes... Yeah, 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 as, as, as indigenous. So, so you know, you, you, have to, you have to think about this, that, you know, we are all indigenous in some, in some measure, and, uh, um, and I think what, what, what this experiment has done in Bolivia is it's not only deinstitutionalized, but I think it's set in motion the worst of everything. And again, going to polls, Bolivians who were intolerant in 2005 and who were racists on both sides, okay, Today are more intolerant and more racist, and that worries me. So, yes, there was. I, I think I think you were first, and then why don't I take a, your th questions, and then maybe I can try to uh, group a couple of them, and we'll get everybody in. Yes. Sure. Um, I appreciate what this question perspective. Basically, as you say, you, you haven't stand apart from a lot of Um, 
some of these things are pretty pretty controversial. I mean, after an adult living in the market, do you find nothing positive to say about the last two and a half years level morality? Okay. Fair question. Fair question. I thought I said something positive, but anyway. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> sure. Another hour? <laughs> All right. Um, 
let me start with uh, with your with your question, and you know it's a it's a fair question because it's it's often asked of me. It's not the, it's not the first time I hear the question, and and uh, you know as I as I noted at the beginning, I mean there there is a point of view here, and and it's a point of view which I you know I've tried to make it equally critical of the opposition. All right, I think the opposition has made some severe mistakes, severe mistakes, and that's the primary reason why I don't think Evo Morales is going to go away. Uh, in the near future, and I think he will be reelected, and uh, and if commodity prices rebound, he'll be reelected again the next time around. So he'll be there, and uh, and I think he will consolidate, by Bolivian terms, his his uh, his political uh, project. Uh, what is good about about this process? And that's why I said, you know, I think it was inevitable. I mean, what is good about this process? I think it has faced Bolivia, it has basically forced Bolivians to face something that we hid all the time, which was this notion that you know we you know and I'm I'm guilty of it just I think like Fernando is to a certain extent you know that we became very complacent, very complacent because the Bolivian mestizo middle class was the great beneficiary of the 1952 revolution and the de democratization process. And we were very complacent, largely because the, the, the large masses of indigenous people, uh, and uh, particularly the rural indigenous, but also the large, large you know, uh, belts of poverty that surround all of the cities, produced by neoliberalism in some, to a certain extent, but also you know, just simply by, by the demographic growth Right by demographic growth, and you, you have to, you know, I, I think you have to understand that, you know, even at the growth rates that Bolivia experienced, which were healthy by Latin American standards, uh, Bolivia never has been able to create more jobs than there are people entering into the labor force, right? And it's certainly not doing so now under Evo Morales. And so, you know, so I think, you know, it, it's it was more than anything else. And and if you if you paid a, paid close attention to what I said, is that authoritarianism in Bolivia has often been democratizing, okay? It sort of goes to your notion of, uh, of, of you know, is, was the MNR revolution bad in the, long, in the long haul? Did it democratize Bolivia? Yes. My father was in a concentration camp for three months during the, during the MNR revolution, but it was in the end a fundamental transforming, you know, uh, 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 revolution and Bolivia was better off with the revolution than without it. Okay, so, uh, and I think down the road we probably will look at Evo Morales and say that Bolivia is better off for basically having forced Bolivians to confront a reality that was hidden by the niceties of formal Bolivian democracy. So, so you know, I think that's a very powerful, strong statement that I that I'm making that often is is not recognized in. In the in the other things that I've that I've said about Evo Morales, now uh, your your uh, notion of of uh, of, uh, of uh, look, uh, Jeffrey Sachs was uh, a professor at Harvard who happened to have a bunch of people from General Banzer's party as his students, and one of them was Ronald McLean, and uh, Ronald McLean asked Jeffrey Sachs, you know, you're a great expert on hyperinflation, you you theorize about this, but you know, as a professor, and often our students tell us this, you know, you. You give a great lecture, but you know how about putting your ideas into practice? And Jeffrey went down and uh, wrote a four-page memo. That was all Jeffrey wrote. Bolivian economists are the ones that transformed. Uh, 
And you're right, President Paz uh, um, Soto ran not on the neoliberal agenda. He ran against it, all right? But, you know, again, this is more, this is really about elections, right? And you, to win elections, you never, you never ran on, I'm going to privatize, I'm going to fire everybody. You know, nobody does that, right? And those who do generally lose, right? So understandable from a political campaigning perspective what the agenda was. Uh, but when he came into office, the first thing he, he, he realized was that there had to be some kind of shock therapy. And he called Jeffrey Sachs in, and, and, and President Pasis Soto used to walk around with a four-page memo that Jeffrey had prepared for him, always in his pocket. And times I interviewed him, you know, he always pulled it out to tell me, this is what Jeffrey Sachs did, and this is what we did. But it was the Bolivians who translated that memo into the policies of the, of the, of the new economic policy. Uh, did it create unemployment? Yes, of course it created unemployment. They closed down the labor lines. You know, they, 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 they fired 22,000 workers who then went into the informal sector. 72% of the economically active population in Bolivia is, is still today in the informal sector. All right. So neoliberalism had some, I think, you know, some arguable uh, uh, impacts on, on the creation of employment. And remember, it wasn't labor intensive to begin with. There was, it was much more, you know, capital intensive and the like. Uh, did it try, you know, the paradox of this, uh, there are some of you who work on Chile, you know, when you look at the figures, the latest figures from, the, from ECLAC, by the way, about percentage of exports that come from non-commodity exports, all right, right? The neoliberal icon is Chile, right? It's the great success story of neoliberalism, right? Under social democracy, if you will. But, you know, 90% of Chilean exports are still commodities. Okay. So even Chile has been unable to break out of the of the of the commodity export. And certainly Bolivia, Bolivia isn't going to do so. Uh, now uh, your your other uh, concern there was you know the, the raising commodity prices. I mean if that was a bet, you know the bet really of neoliberalism, at least rhetorically, was to create value added exports. And if we're going to really be critical of neoliberalism, it's that it failed to do that. Nowhere, I'm, you know, I, 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 or please point it out to me if you, if, you, if you have it, because nowhere in my interviews with the neoliberals of Bolivia did I ever find anybody saying, well, we hope the tin recovers. You know, we hope that commodity prices recover. No, yes, they made a big bet on, on, on gas, but by and large, you know, they were talking about services, you know, services industries and everything else, which was, you know, they were talking about clusters. Remember, Michael Porter was very famous in Bolivia, not just Jeffrey Sachs. And so, you know, so it, it's, it's interesting because, again, uh, the, the benefit, and, and this is where, you know, what is Evo Morales, what has been the great benefit of neoliberalism to Evo Morales' government? Evo Morales came in saying, I will eradicate Decree 21060. That's the decree that, that institutionalized uh, neoliberalism in Bolivia. Has he eradicated it four years after? It's still there. Okay? Evo, and I think Professor Petras, whom I hardly ever quote, okay, is probably correct. You're really talking, and you might even say that this is, this is indigenous neoliberalism. Right? See? Basically, you know, apart from not nationalizing, but essentially changing a law, 
The only confiscation that has occurred in Bolivia has been of domestic savings, of the pension system. So he only confiscated Bolivian, Bolivian earnings. Right? That's, that's it. There's no, there's no nationalization in the way that, for example, Sanchez de Lozada and his, and his brother Tony participated in the 1969 nationalization of Gulf Oil, where there was an expropriation of assets. Right? So I think, you know, it's, it's really, I think we have to be more precise when we, when we look at, at, at what has happened there. We don't have an extreme case of, 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 of uh, 21st century Marxism, right? Uh, there's still neoliberalism, if you want, in, in, in Bolivia. And, and more importantly, it seems to me that, uh, that Evo Morales is, is a great beneficiary of the re reforms and transformations on the economy, especially in terms of the production of hydrocarbons. Great luck. And really, often what happens, as President Clinton found out, you know, is that when you come into office and the economy recovers, all right, it doesn't matter if anything that you did had anything to do with the recovery, right? Uh, you are the one who benefits from the results. And much of the hard work that was done from 1985 to 2005 really transformed itself into the economic boom since 2005 in the export of commodity prices, right? So, uh, so yes, the, the, the change in laws helped, but more than anything else, it was the commodity boom. And that takes me to your question. Can Evo Morales survive if the commodity prices don't recover? Uh, okay. Or how will Evo react to the new economic reality? Yeah. Will he become even more authoritarian, more reliant, yeah. less on institutions, and more on, uh, and so on and so forth? Yeah. I, well, I, you know, I think, um, you know, the price for, for, for commodities, especially for hydrocarbons, is still high. Let's not kid ourselves. You know, it's still high. It's not. It hasn't gone down to eight dollars, which it was when when Chavez first came into office. So, I think commodity prices are going to continue to 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 be high in historical terms. Uh, but Bolivia has done something which is not good, and uh, by going and you know full force attacking uh, neoliberalism, it also has really you know. Um, I think frightened any possibility of, of a foreign investment. And it has bet on this idea that the Venezuelans are going to invest in Bolivia just simply out of pure altruism. You know, the, the, the record so far tells us that the Venezuelan investment is very small, that it hasn't materialized, and that, uh, and that other companies, you know, the, where there was great investment was in mining. But already the mining sector, the, 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 the American companies and, 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 and other companies have been, have been really, you know, on the, I mean, the, the Morales, and, and, and not only President Morales, but the, the movements, the social movements, the SSs as they're called in, in, uh, in Bolivia by the opposition, right, these social, these, these, these social movements that act as, as, as shock troops, they have already targeted a few of these mining interests. And, and uh, you know, they're, the, the foreign, foreign interests they're trying to sell off as quickly as possible to try to rescue some of their, of their initial investment. So uh, commodity prices, will, will China continue to import Bolivian, uh, Bolivian goods? Probably. So my sense is that, you know, this is a cyclical thing. It's going to, it's going to return to the, the good times of, of, uh, of uh, Bolivia has $7, trillion, uh, $7 billion in, in, uh, in reserves, the highest in history. 
And so it exactly right. They're net they're net reserves, and by the way, by probably the next 10, 12 months, are going to have disappeared. All right. And so then, then that's when the macro problem occurs. And I think your, your, your concern about the macro economy is correct. Most, most countries uh, that have taken a different route, let us say, have really given some uh, absolute significance to macroeconomic stability. And I'm not sure that Bolivia can, can uh, maintain macroeconomic stability in this context, especially because they have to win the December elections. And, uh, you know, I, I do a little bit of this in my, in my spare time, work on campaigns in, in, in a number of countries, and I know what happens when uh, you're the government and you're trying to get reelected. You spend a heck of a lot, justifiably or unjustifiably, but you spend a lot. So what's the health going to be like in January, February of next year? But I, I still think, you know, that that's not going to be enough for Evo to step down. And I think what it's going to do, however, is greater concentration in the executive branch, not only by constitutional design, but by, you know, I mean, I, I'm going to say something that, that, you know, again, sounds rather, look, we have never respected any constitution in Bolivia. Never. Okay? They're, it's a beautiful document, nice piece of paper, but, you know, and, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll go further. I'll say, not, you know, nowhere in Latin America have we respected constitutions. And we think that changing the Constitution is going to change political behavior, right? Morales, change of elite. You were talking about the change. It's a change of elite. So, you know, why should the middle class be still employed in these ministries? This is our turn, right? So we're, going to, we're putting our clients in there now. And I'm not criticizing that because every government has done it. The problem is, I think, in expertise. Not any indigenous. Yeah. 60-year, 70-year-old Marxists. Right, right, right. But, you know, we did that during the MNR revolution as well, you know, and, and, and President Chavez has done I mean, I, I understand that politically, okay? I understand that politically. It doesn't make sense from a, you know, how you're going to properly administer a bureaucracy in the context of what is today a world, the world economy. So I think in the end, Bolivia will be more authoritarian, more poor, and I don't know how long Chavez will, I mean Chavez, Morales will last, but I think, you know, the, in the end, the outcome is not going to be different than, than those of others. Uh, one more question, I guess, and that's... Uh, okay, let me, let, me, let me have somebody who hasn't asked, and then we can, uh, yeah. You mentioned that, uh, you know, some of the people that are with him, the vice president, there are some old Marxists, the people on the left, and that they are, they are really the brains behind what is the goal? Do you, what do you think is the goal in the long run? What do they really want to happen in Bolivia? <laughs> Maybe you cannot remind, but what is that they're looking for? Well, you know, uh, I, made a, I made a rather, uh, you know, I, I have read everything uh, uh, Vice President uh, Garcia Linera has written, even some of his unpublished uh, work. And, uh, you know, I, I asked Fernando uh, to translate it for me because I don't understand it. Okay, I don't, I don't, I don't understand uh, what Alvaro Garcia uh, Linera writes, and you know maybe I'm just stupid. And if he if he hears that I'm that I'm saying this, he'll probably say you're right, you're stupid, because you know I don't understand. And and uh, I think there are these models that are that are largely borrowing a little bit of Marxism from the '60s, and you know uh, putting a little bit of indigenism in there. And uh, and in the end, I think you know they're uh, building. 
let me say this, implementing utopia is very difficult. And, uh, but, but this is, you know, uh, I, again, as I, as I ended my, my remarks just a, a few moments ago, I, I think, you know, that uh, uh, these individuals uh, in the end um, are, you know, they're not, they're not committed to democracy as I understand it. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult. You know, I, I find myself right now in the position where I can't return to Bolivia, you know. Uh, I've been threatened. I've been, you know, I receive emails daily by people who threaten me. I've had the Bolivian government not, not you know, uh, give me a passport, things of that kind, you know, which probably should not take there. Uh, but, you know, it's, a, you know, it's a, there are, you know, as I said, this is the first time since 1982 that we have political exiles, all right? And so, you know, I, I don't, you know, again, I'm, and it's not just because they were genocidal maniacs or what have you as, as, as we're trying to portray them. It's people that are genuinely concerned over the erosion of due process. And, you know, and there are, there are many people in Bolivia. I mean, President Morales, in my own surveys, is still the most popular politician in the country, all right? And he will win every election he runs. Okay, and he will win, you know, whether it's ratify my new constitution to reelect me, he's going to win it. And that gives him the authority to essentially impose this model. And, and you know, that, that worries me certainly, but, you know, again, uh, I'm a minority. And uh, um, so I don't know which direction it's going to go. My only concern is that it's going to be violent. And uh, that's the worst case scenario. Well, thank you again. Uh, don't forget, please, to fill out this form with more information about the restaurant. We have cards. And thank you for coming. <laughs> bueno, gracias. <laughs> I didn't want to ask you, but you didn't say anything about corruption inside the. Well, it's not the.